Would you join me in prayer as we come to the preaching of the word? Let's pray. Lord, that song says it all. Christ, our hope in life and death. Christ, our only comfort in life and death. Christ, our, our greatest joy in life and death. Father, we pray that you would recapture our hearts today. As Augustine said, that you would strike our hearts and we would love you. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open the ears of our hearts, that we might see and hear your glory. We pray that you would change us, Lord, as we behold the glory of Christ, that we would be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that he would be exalted in this word now and that you would be exalted, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would not be the same. We give you glory, Father, and trust you to speak now to us in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. There is a saying that is attributed to an ancient anonymous saint. Those are the best kind ancient and anonymous saints. And the saying goes like this, be kind to every person you meet, for every person you meet is carrying a heavy load. And that's true this morning. There's not a person in this room that has not come in carrying some load. And some of you are feeling crushed beneath an overwhelmingly heavy load. So what is your load today? Is it financial insecurity, a painful relationship, lingering depression or anxiety? Maybe it's past trauma or abuse, addiction, or some besetting sin, or maybe spiritual dryness and a sense of great distance from the Lord. As we look around us, and then as we look within we cannot help but conclude life is really hard, sometimes overwhelming. We know we're supposed to persevere and stand firm, but frankly, that seems easier said than done sometimes. We know we need help, but we're not even sure what kind of help we need. There was a 19th century Scottish pastor and hymn writer named George Matheson. George was blind from birth, and he knew what a heavy load was. This is how he once prayed. My father, I have moments of deep unrest, moments when I know not what to ask by reason of the very excess of my wants. I have in these hours no words for you, no conscious prayers for you, but you know what I ask, O God. You know the name of that need which lies beneath my speechless groan. You know that because I am made in your image, and I can find rest only in what gives rest to you. Therefore, you have counted my unrest for righteousness and have called my groaning your spirit's prayer. I'll bet there are people in this room right now that could relate to that prayer. Don't you just love how good God is to us. God knows what even we don't know. We don't always know what we need. We don't always know even what we want the most, but God does. And not only that, 
He actually writes prayers for us to pray. And as good as George Matheson's prayer is, I'm talking about something much bigger, much better. The prayers that God wrote in the Bible. Now, most of those are found in the Psalms, but this morning, I want to share a little gem with you. It's tucked away in 2 Thessalonians. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. It's a short two-verse prayer. It's actually a benediction, which is kind of strange because it's, it's a benediction before the final benediction in 2 Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> so here's what Paul says. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So today's going to be a little different kind of sermon. It's just two verses, and I'm actually only going to preach verse 16. And you're thinking, well, this is great. This will not be a long sermon. Ha ha, don't be, don't be so sure. It's only one verse, but I'm actually going to preach it almost word for word. And it will be a bit of a fire hose. It'll be too much to remember. And for those of you like me who like to take notes, you might just throw the pencil down at a certain point, but that's okay. What I want to do is just show you the unsearchable riches of grace in Christ in this one verse so that you'll be motivated this week to come back to this verse, these two verses, many times. <clears throat> so I'll preach through verse 16, and then we will end the sermon uh, using verse 17 as a guide for some quiet personal prayer. So that's the plan. So how does this start? Well, it starts with the word now. You didn't believe me when I said I was going to preach it word for word. So what is now? What is that about? Well, primarily, it's just a transition word between verse 15, where Paul says, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you were taught by us, and verse 16, which is a prayer. So it's, it's mainly just a transition but it is the word now, it's not and or but or so or therefore. And so it's an indirect reminder that the help we need, we need now. We know we've received help in the past. We know we're going to ask for help again in the future. But how many of you, if you were honest, when you walked in this room today, you're realizing, you're thinking, I need help today. I need help now. Well, this word is addressing us now. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Beautiful phrase. What does God want us to see <clears throat> in that phrase? Well, notice, first of all, Paul says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like Jesus teaching us to pray, our Father it's a helpful reminder that this is a communal prayer. We are all in this Christian life together. It's obvious. It's more obvious on Sunday when we come together, but it's often forgotten. We so much in our culture want to be independent individuals, we forget we're a family. 
We forget that we are a band of brothers and sisters. And we so easily focus on our own problems that we forget that others have problems too, sometimes much worse than ours. So we not only need the Lord, we need the Lord together. This prayer is meant to be prayed together. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a four-letter word. But that word Lord flies in the face of the lies of our culture. And it flies in the face of our own rebellious desires. The title Lord Jesus Christ reminds us, it tells us, it declares to us that we are creatures under a creator. We are servants under a master. We are subjects under a king. We are disciples under a teacher. We are not autonomous the way our culture tells us and the way we would like to be. We do not discover our own identity. We do not create our own reality. We do not decide for ourselves what's right or wrong. We bow low before. We listen to and follow our Lord. Now, may our Lord Jesus, Jesus is a name. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It means God saves or God is salvation. It comes from Matthew 21 when the angel tells Joseph, your wife will conceive and bear a son and you are to call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the one sent from the Father who came to save us from our sins. Pastor Jason reminded us a few weeks ago that the real problem in the world is not ignorance. It's not poverty or racism. It's not politics. Those are just symptoms. The real problem in the world, the problem underneath all the other problems is sin. And that's crucial to remember because it tells us that Jesus did not come into the world to attract a following. He did not come into the world to dispense some good advice. He did not come into the world to maximize your potential or increase your wealth or fulfill your dreams. Jesus came into the world to save you from your sins. Your sins, my sins, all sins are deadly. They dishonor God and they destroy our souls. Now, there's many things in the world that we're legitimately concerned about, many things that can hurt us, at least temporarily. But there's only one thing that can sink your ship. There's only one thing that can destroy you forever, and that is unforgiven sin. That is the one enemy, the final catastrophe. But... This final catastrophe is the one thing that has been abolished by the death of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your sins, all of them, are forgiven, and you are eternally secure 
under the shadow of God's wings if you are in Christ by faith. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is a name, Christ is a title. It's the Greek equivalent of Messiah. It means the anointed one. Jesus, the Christ, is God's final, decisive, God-anointed prophet, priest, and king. He is God's final anointed prophet. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. Jesus is God's final, God-anointed priest. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And he is God's final anointed king. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that word is put in for emphasis, God didn't send an angel. He didn't send a messenger or a representative. God sent his own son, the Lord, the word become flesh, who dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And God our father. Now, we might be tempted to just quickly go over that one. God our Father, of course he's our Father. Brothers and sisters, if you think about it, God our Father, there's nothing like that in any other religion. It's staggering. God, the infinite, transcendent, holy God that you cannot even see and live is through Jesus Christ, our Abba our Father. One of the most beautiful descriptions of God our Father is in Psalm 103, which I already used as our assurance of pardon. I'm just going to read part of it again. He, God, our Father, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, Yahweh, shows compassion to those who fear him. God, our Father, the High and Holy One, who shows tender mercies to his children. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Obviously, love is one of the great themes of the Bible. John says God is love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Now I want to talk a little bit here about love. And I'm indebted to a book by uh, a person that many of you know as a singer-songwriter, Michael Card. He's also a prolific writer, and he wrote a book called Inexpressible. And it's about one Hebrew word. Love, the word love is used about 680 times in the Bible in our ESV translation. The most significant word for, for love in the Old Testament, used about 250 times, is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is by, by, by far the most repeated and significant word for love. Now, it's crucial that we understand this word even as we think about New Testament teaching. I want you to just consider something. The Old Testament writers were Jews. Hebrew was their native language, and it was the language of their faith and their religion. And so they thought in Hebrew, and they wrote in Hebrew. But in the New Testament, it's a different time, it's a different culture. Greek is now the common language of the empire. And so the New Testament, also Jewish people, written by Jewish people, they wrote in Greek, but they still thought in Hebrew. And so when Paul says in the verses we looked at, Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us, he uses the Greek word agapesas from the Greek word agape. But the word he would have been thinking of, the word that would have formed the dynamic of his understanding of love would still be hesed because he was steeped in the Old Testament. Now, there's no one English word that fully captures hesed, the glory and the wonder and the magnitude of this love. That's why in the ESV, it's translated steadfast love, perfectly good translation. In other translations, it's unfailing love, loving kindness, tender mercies, faithful love, constant love, great in mercy, abounding in kindness, great loyal love, rich in love, great in kindness, and others. This is the deepest biblical concept of love that underlies the whole Bible. Now, probably the most significant and decisive time of the use of hesed in the Old Testament is when God reveals himself in a special way to Moses. It's in Exodus 34. Moses and God are on the mountain again. Moses has been pleading for God to forgive Israel after the golden calf. And God says that he will do that. And Moses, so encouraged by this, prays, asks God an incredibly audacious thing. He says, Lord, show me your glory. That's crazy. God says, you can't see my glory and live. So he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he passes before him and he says, you can see my back. And as he passes before him, the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in hesed, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So there's the kind of climactic time, but that's early in the Old Testament. And the word is repeated some 250 times in the Old Testament. David, a number of times in his Psalms, praised God for hesed. He said, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. David's son Solomon prayed about hesed at the dedication of the temple. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne as to this day. King Jehoshaphat commanded Hesed when the armies of Israel went out to battle. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And finally, Nehemiah, after the exile, reminded Israel of God's hesed. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Crucial, crucial idea. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. There's one of the two big things that we're talking about today. Gave us eternal comfort. The word comfort in Greek comes from two Greek words put together, para kaleo. Para means alongside, and kaleo means to call. So to comfort someone means to be called alongside, to encourage, to strengthen, to counsel and console. Now think about that. This morning, in whatever your trials and heavy burdens are, God desires that you have his eternal encouragement, his eternal strength, his eternal counsel and consolation. And that sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good because every one of us gets weary and we crave comfort and encouragement. We get weary and discouraged from having to do battle every single day on three fronts. We battle the indwelling resistance and rebellion to God that is in our sinful nature. We battle the falsehoods and foolishness of a fallen world all around us. And we battle the unseen but destructive strategies of the devil. And we get weary. God says, I want you to have eternal comfort. So what does that look like? Well, I think we often settle for much lesser things. The eternal, God, uh, eternal comfort that God wants us to have is much better than getting married or having a happy family or a satisfying and well-paying job or even a restful weekend or vacation. 
the best place that I know that describes the eternal comfort, we just sang about it. And you know that's right out of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. The question is, what is your only comfort, your only encouragement, strength, consolation, hope in life and in death? And the answer, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I was talking to Scott Lawton in between the services and he was really struck with that Heidelberg Catechism question and answer. And I think we agreed that every Christian in the world should memorize that question and answer. That's why we have everybody who is taking the About URC class memorize that. So God wants us to have eternal comfort and good hope. Those are the two things, eternal comfort and good hope. It's another beautiful phrase. We know you can't really live without hope. You can exist, you can breathe, you can eat, but you can't really live without hope. And we think of hope as a desired but uncertain outcome. Like, I hope it doesn't rain for the church picnic. Well, so much for that one. Or, I hope I get into that grad school. Or, I hope this treatment stop the pain. It's desired, but it's uncertain. But brothers and sisters, even if every one of your hopes came true and was realized, you still would not be satisfied because you were made <clears throat> for something bigger and better. You were made for a good hope. And Paul is our reliable guide. Here's how Paul talks about this hope in Colossians. To them... Gentiles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what's our good hope? Christ lives in us, and it's a, it's a guarantee of glory. In Titus, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very similar. Living hope, blessed hope, good hope, hope of glory, all pointing to the same thing. So we could say that good hope is the appearing of Christ in all his glory, and then swallowing us up into that glory to enjoy him forever. Many of you know that our son Neil is pastor down in Kalamazoo, and recently he was preaching through the book of Daniel, and he said something 
<clears throat> that I really liked. So I'm going to share it with you. Neil said, the appearing of Jesus, his second coming, is the final answer to all your prayers. Have you ever thought of that? We pray for temporal things, nothing wrong with that, for health, for a job, for success in school, whatever. We, but we pray as believers for more than that. We know we were made for something bigger and better. And we know that we're not there yet. We just are painfully aware of how far short we fall. And so we pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Strike my heart. Give me the mind and the heart of Christ. Conform me to his image. And we plead and we see incremental growth, but it seems slow. And, and all of our dreams seem to be just wrapped up in this. I want to know Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And when he comes, every prayer you ever prayed will come true. That's good hope. One more thing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. God's, Paul's just got to get one more thing in there. Through grace. What is grace? Well, it's... In some ways, it's kind of the New Testament counterpart to Hesed in the Old Testament. It's, it's one of, another one of those words that's just too big for its britches. It's, just, it's almost impossible to completely capture what grace is. Sometimes we say grace is God's unmerited favor. That's a good definition. Or we use that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. <clears throat> that's even a little fuller. Sometimes... We need other helps, and I think hymns and songs help us grasp what grace is, and that's why I think we love to sing here, and we love to sing good biblical gospel songs. One of my favorite hymns is Come Ye Sinners. In that song, we are encouraged to come to Jesus, weak and wounded, sick and sore, and then be amazed to find Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. That's grace. Or, again, Michael Card, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, he has this song from a long time ago called Jubilee. And in that song, in the bridge to that song, he says, to be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and find a savior there. That's grace. Beyond all hope. So we might say that grace is to deserve nothing and sometimes come to God, quite frankly, expecting nothing, and then beyond your wildest dreams, realize that God has given you everything. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We come to God deserving nothing, and sometimes expecting nothing, 
And then we realize God gives us his son in our place on the cross to redeem us so that he can adopt us as his own children. And as if that's not enough, then he gives us his spirit to come into our hearts and overflow our hearts. In other words, we expect and deserve nothing, and God gives us himself. That's grace. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father loved us, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. What? May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's the destination. That's the punchline. So what we're going to do right now as we close is I'm just going to guide you in some silent prayer. Sometimes life is so busy, we just don't even have time to get away. So we're just going to take some time before we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to ask you some questions that will just guide your prayer. Let me just say a word at first. There may be someone here, probably there is, who has never really experienced that comfort and hope. Maybe you're here today because someone brought you. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you've even been a churchgoer for a long time, but deep down you know, I don't really, I'm not really experiencing that freedom and that forgiveness and that comfort. Well, as we pray right now, what a wonderful time for you to just talk to God. Recognize you need forgiveness. You need the life that only Christ can give you. The rest of us, we still need comfort and good hope. So let's go to prayer right now. Just going to guide you with some questions. We'll just take some quiet time to pray. So where do you or someone you know need your heart comforted? As you think about your need or someone's, someone else's need for comfort, remember God's hesed, his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his tender mercies, his extravagant grace. Let's pray. All praise that God would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So as you go back to prayer now, what good works or words is God calling you to this week? How is he calling you to serve? Whom is he calling you to serve? And is there anyone he's calling you to speak to, maybe even to share God's comfort of the gospel with? Ask him to establish your good works and words. Pastor Kevin is going to come up and lead us to the Lord's table. As you come to the Lord's table, bring your need, bring this verse, bring this need and gift of eternal comfort and good hope with you. At the cross, at his table, God promises that eternal comfort and good hope through the cross. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who is amazing at packing a whole world of truth to one or two verses. Would you continue to minister to us would you let us see and taste and know and share with others eternal comfort and good hope for your glory. 
Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.